Um, we had some people under the weather, some of our volunteers under the weather. So Michelle just stepped up, even though she was not even scheduled, to uh, sing and do announcements, and we really appreciate that. If you're wondering where Pastor Eric is, he is with a pre-K today. So he is actually quite excited about that. But um, welcome, so glad you are here. If you will grab a Bible and open it to Psalm 51. We're going to be reading from that in a little bit. Psalm 51, it's marked with a post-it note for you. We've been um, going through this series called The Story and understanding to learn the Bible as one continuous story about God and people and how he created us, how he created this world, and what he is still active doing in our world. And so we started back in October in Genesis, and we are now to Second Samuel on the life of King David, who wrote Psalm 51. The Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. And so we're going to look a little bit at his life today. Um, before we get to Psalm 51, I'm going to give you some background on David, okay? He was the youngest of eight brothers, What does that bring to mind? (laughs) I got a bunch of guys right here. Like, what does that mean? Do you think maybe he got teased, picked on a little bit? Maybe felt overlooked while he was growing up? Um, He definitely felt overlooked. All of his brothers had, like, the big, important jobs, going off, doing business. David got stuck with a job nobody wanted, tending the sheep, which was, you know... Long days outside with nobody to talk to, all by himself with a bunch of sheep. Every day, day after day. And David, you know, he could have become despondent, feeling kind of shelved, overlooked, just like this castaway, not being really developed for anything in life. But David was a dreamer. And I think there's pretty good evidence that all those days alone in nature, he dreamed about being a warrior. He practiced hundreds of hours with his sling because he didn't have a lot of other things to do. And when he realized that, you know, he was talking to sheep too much, he talked to the one person who could understand him, God. And the Psalms are... Stories, they're songs, but they're stories of God's relationship with David and David's personal relationship with God. And in them, he just pours out all of his thoughts, all of his emotions to God. And then he would make them into songs and he'd play them on his lyre for God. And the sheep, you know, they listen to. And this was David's training ground all along in nature, talking to God and sheep. And getting wicked good with a slingshot. And God met him there. God spoke dreams and wisdom and courage to David in those alone times. My friends, in times of aloneness, we always have two choices. We can fear the aloneness. Or we can face it with God. If we fear aloneness, we're going to become despondent. And feel like we don't have any purpose in life. And we're just going to pour negativity into our souls. But if we realize that aloneness is an opportunity. 
in that quietness, in that stillness, in the unrushed pace of aloneness, we will let those long, buried, deep passions start to rise to the surface and well up and reach the ears of God. And we will come to know God in a way we could never know his heart when we are busy and occupied. God uses times of aloneness and unbusyness to draw our hearts close to him, to come to know him and be known by him in ways that are sweeter than any other loved one we have. In his aloneness, David became a man after God's own heart. And he also became prepared for God's next assignment for him. It was during these times of aloneness that God sent him opportunities to grow. Fun opportunities, like getting attacked by bears and lions. That's what our opportunities to grow often look like. And David killed them. He he was filled with God's courage and strength. And so later when a giant taunted God, David knew. He knew. He knew that God would help him defeat that giant, just like he helped him defeat the lion and the bear. He also knew he was wicked good with his slingshot. And so David didn't hesitate to battle Goliath. And he went into that battle... Dr. Rubio read these scriptures for you last week. He went into that battle very clearly for God's glory and not his own. He gave all the glory to God. And that remained consistent throughout David's life. David consistently sought God's glory. He he never really sought his own glory. David never sought to become king. Even after he was king, he was willing to relinquish his throne. Power and glory was never something that David sought for himself. Which, of course, is the complete opposite of King Saul, his predecessor, right? Saul didn't want to become king at first, but once he got the power, he liked it. And he wanted to keep it. And God had anointed Saul king. But just because God raises up a leader does not mean God always wants to keep that leader in power. God had anointed Saul king, but Saul did not know God. He used God, and there's a difference. Saul, he knew about worship of God, and, and he, you know, when it was his, in his benefit, when worshiping God earned him favor with God or a favor with his troops who were watching him worship, then, oh, yeah, Saul was very devout. But when Saul could earn a victory by ignoring God's commands, well, he was willing to do that also. And so God abandoned Saul and sent Samuel to deliver a message that his reign was ending. But Saul didn't like this message and he didn't accept it. And he became obsessed with trying to hold on to his power. On December 17th, we read scriptures about Saul and studying his life. It's a fascinating case study in a leader that God had raised up and then becomes obsessed with doing whatever it takes to hold on to his power. 
And so God abandons him and Acts 13, 22 records, after removing Saul, he made David their king. He had Samuel anoint David king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. God abandons Saul. He raises up another leader who doesn't care about power. And this is one of the defining traits of all the great biblical leaders in the Bible. I mean, if you think about it, Joseph did not scheme in any way, shape, or form to rise to power. That was totally through the hand of God. Moses definitely did not want to be the leader of the people of Israel. (laughs) He didn't want to do it in the beginning. He didn't want to do it almost the entire time. He said, God, look, if you're leaving, I'm gone too. I do not need this job. (laughs) I'm only staying here if you stay with all of us. Moses only accepted that assignment because of his relationship with God. David, even when God anoints him king, and the current king, Saul, is a raving lunatic, He still doesn't claim his throne. He flees from Saul. He has many opportunities to defeat Saul. Doesn't take it. Even after he becomes king, David willingly abandons the throne when there's a revolt. He doesn't defend his own throne. David trusts God to bring him to power and to take it away. And he's okay either way. Another example, Daniel from the Bible. A great leader was a chief advisor to at least four different kings. There is nothing in Daniel's story about him desiring power. It's all about him desiring God and to follow God. Jesus never sought to exalt himself, only sought to follow God and serve others as best he could. It's a characteristic of leaders who have a heart after God's heart. That they don't crave power and glory. Philippians 2, 3-7 through says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That is how you know a leader has a heart after God. That they have a heart like Jesus. That above all, they seek God and God's will, not their own glory. And they are willing to lay down their power to serve others. Throughout his life, David never sought power. He sought God. And his Psalms are a record of that. How in his darkest moments, when he's being hunted, he's on the run for years. We don't know quite how many years, but it was years living in caves, in the wilderness, fearing for his life. He is pouring out his soul to God. And he is honest. Last week we read some of those psalms. He's talking about his fear, his anger, his bitterness, his depression, all of it. And it's his conversations with God that keep drawing him back to hope, to strength and joy. 
The Bible also records how when David finally did become king after Saul died, he worked hard defending God's people and restoring the worship of God in Israel. He brought back the Ark of the Covenant. He appointed priests and musicians to lead people in worship. He deeply cared about obeying and honoring God. He battled, led, and served for God's glory, not his own. That was consistent his whole life. The other thing that was consistent his whole life is that he abused women. More than once, he used King Saul's daughter, Michal, as a political pawn. The Bible says she loved him, but it never says David loved her. And even after she saved his life, he still treated her shamefully. She had a husband who loved her. He forcefully took her away and put her in his harem even though he didn't love her. He also sent a marriage proposal to Abigail, a wealthy widow, just about 11 days after threatening to wipe out her and her whole household. Some people read this as a love story. I don't know where they get that from. I mean, Abigail, her husband, the Bible says, is an idiot. And he deeply offends David. David, who's been on the run for years from Saul, he snaps. He cannot handle it anymore. And he brings 400 men to raid them and wipe them out. And Abigail meets David and his army and just barely talks him out of a massacre. And then her husband dies like 10 days later and he sends a marriage proposal. The language of his marriage proposal was this. He sent men. David has sent us to you to take you to be his wife. David has sent us to you to take you to be his wife. Now, hmm, what should a girl do? (sighs) I mean, there's no chance that if she says no to this very public proposal, he could get, you know, offended and... Send 400 men to kill them all like he did a week ago. She says, I'm your servant. I will serve you. I will serve your servants. I will wash their feet. So David gains another wife. Probably her wealth. And the Bible wraps up the story with just One little comment mentioning how David already has other wives. In other words, it's not exactly a love story. Later, David uses his power as king to coerce Bathsheba into having sex with him. Now, Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel, one of David's longest and closest advisors. She was also the wife of his friend Uriah. Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men who, back in his days when he was on the run from Saul, you know, like Robin Hood and his merry men, (laughs) running here and there, raiding people, giving things to the poor, all that kind of good stuff, maybe threatening recently widowed women. Um, Uriah was with him. And Uriah was one of his 30 followers, his best followers who fought and defended him and supported him. That Uriah who stuck with him through all of that. 
his wife, David coerced into sex. And then when she becomes married, David covers it up by killing Uriah and marrying Bathsheba. All in all, David accumulated eight wives and at least ten concubines that we know of. And this is a clear violation of God's law in Deuteronomy 17 that says kings should not have multiple wives. Even when he was an old man and he's frail, he keeps a young virgin in his bed to keep him warm at night. You know, because there's no other way to keep warm at night. David took advantage of women his whole life. And it is true that after his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, the prophet Nathan came to him and convicted him of his sin. And David repented wholeheartedly. He repented. He did not put in any pretense. He just broke down and he wept. And he fasted. He did not eat anything for days before the Lord. He was broken. And God forgave him. Second Samuel twelve thirteen says this. Then David said to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. God forgave David, which is good news. Because, I mean, if God could forgive David of that, then God can forgive us of anything, right? That's good news. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us from all, from any and all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter how horrible it is. God forgives those who humble themselves and repent. But at the same time, I mean, there's this there's tension, right? Because you think, well, God, like, how can you forgive rape and murder? Forgiveness doesn't mean the absence of consequences. We reap what we sow. David had built his family by taking advantage of women, and his sons followed his example and tore his family apart. Do you know the next story in the Bible after David and Bathsheba? Anyone? Like the very next story. David's eldest son, Ammon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Like father, like son. And David is furious, but he does nothing about it. And I don't know why, but I'm guessing it's because he felt guilt that he was guilty of about the same thing himself. So how can he punish Ammon? So he doesn't do anything. And Tamar's brother, Absalom, her full blood brother, he's furious. And he murders Ammon. And then he leads this revolt against his father, David. And is joined by, guess who? Ahithophel. Who apparently has never forgiven David for dishonoring his granddaughter Bathsheba. And Ahithophel tells Absalom to sleep with all of David's concubines in public. And Absalom does. And David is so grief stricken, he, he can't, he does nothing about it. And so his nephew kills Absalom to end the revolt. Years 
later, David's son, Adonijah, revolts against his half-brother, Solomon. And Solomon has Adonijah executed. These are David's kids, raping and killing one another. We reap what we sow. None of this would have happened if David had obeyed God's command to have only one wife. So how do we hold these things in tension? We have David, a man of lust and violence, who abused women, committed murder, and made a mess of his family. And David, a man who fought and led and served for God's glory, a man after God's own heart. How how do we balance these things? David was a passionate man. He was passionate for God, loving and obeying God, and he let God rule over every area of his life except one. Except regarding his sexuality and his passion for lust and sex. And some of us know that struggle. Some of us are horrified by it. But we have other pet sins. The one command of God that you habitually ignore, the one sin that you just justify and keep as a pet, is the one that will destroy you. It will break your life and harm your family. And it doesn't matter how devout you are. We see that in David's life. It doesn't matter how much you love God and how much good you do. David blessed a whole nation with his leadership. If you get cozy with a sin and you keep it as a pet, it is going to destroy you. It's going to break you. And when your life starts to break, you've got two choices. You can pridefully deny it. And just kind of minimize the sin and offer sacrifices to God and act like you still can control and holding everything together like Saul. Or you can humble yourself before God like David with no pretense at all. And just cry out to God for mercy because God's mercy is greater than our sin. And God's faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he worked hard to keep up the illusion that he was still capable. Even making public sacrifices to God. When David was confronted with his sin, he wept, he fasted, and he said, I will not offer you sacrifices because you won't accept them. I will offer you a broken and contrite heart. He wrote Psalm 51, which we're going to read now. In your Bible, you will often see headings above a chapter. You'll see here there's a heading below the chapter. And that's because this heading is actually in scripture. It's been translated from Hebrew. Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Just got to pause right there and realize what that means that that is in scripture. 
It means that David wrote this prayer to God. And he did not keep it private. That he then took it as king. He took it to his director of music and said, I want you to publish this as a song. Letting everyone know of my repentance when I committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's how much he humbled himself. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil what, and done what is evil in your sight. So God, you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He has, he has no illusion that, oh, I had a one-time lapse in judgment. David is being real with himself and really with God. Sin has always been a problem in my life. You desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He's asking God not to see him in terms of his sin anymore. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, he's not, his primary concern isn't, God, will you honor me again? Don't let anybody know about what I've done wrong. Don't take, don't take away my, my job, God. That's not what he's primarily concerned about. What he's primarily concerned about is his relationship with God. Do not cast me from your presence. That's the thing that above all else he can't stand to lose. The presence of God in his life. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back from you. He's asking God for a new legacy here. Not a legacy of unrighteousness, but a legacy where he actually helps people become righteous and lead good lives to learn from his mistakes. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshot, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And God did not despise David's broken and contrite heart. God answered his prayers. He cleanses David's heart. He restores joy to him. And he gives David a legacy of righteousness. God promises David that I'm going to establish your family. I'm going to be kind to a thousand generations. 
And it is through David that he brings his son, the Savior, into the world. David becomes blessed to become the forefather of the Messiah, the Son of God. God just completely rewrites this legacy of David's life. And so 3,000 years later, we still know this guy's name. He's still considered Israel's greatest king. And his story still inspires people to follow God. Did all of the consequences of David's sin immediately disappear when God forgave him? No. But God gave David a legacy that far outweighed the legacy of his sin. A legacy of righteousness. And David's story humbles me. Um, It humbles me because every time I grapple with this question, like, God, how can David be a man after your own heart? I mean, look at everything he did. How can he be a man after your own heart? There's only one answer. There's only one possible answer. And it's that God does not define us by our worst sins. When God looks at the story of our life, he does not define us by our worst failures, by our marriage failures, by our parenting failures. God does not define us by our worst sin. He defines us by our relationship with him. And who remains humble before him? What distinguishes us in God's eyes is not how the good we do, And not the bad we do. What distinguishes us in God's eyes is who humbles themselves and admits they're a sinner. Because we're all sinners. We've all devalued people. We do. Sometimes it's to get ahead. Sometimes we devalue people to feel better about ourselves. Sometimes we devalue people because we're just grumpy and don't have patience. But we devalue people. We sin. And our Heavenly Father knows it. And He sees it. And He does not devalue us. When God looks at the story of our lives, He doesn't devalue us by just saying, Oh, right there. That's who they are. He defines us by our relationship with Him. If we humble ourselves and we ask Him, He blots out our transgression. Yeah, there's still lingering consequences. But he blots out our sin so it doesn't define us. And he will give us a legacy of righteousness that is greater than the legacy of our sin. And that just gets me every time. God is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through the generations. Isaiah 43, 25. God is speaking. He says, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, not for yours. (laughs) Not because we're good enough. But I blot out your transgressions for your my own sake. I will not remember your sins. 
Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. In James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. God is faithful to keep those promises, even when we do not keep our promises to him. So trust him. Trust him and humble yourself and trust him with all parts of your life. To rule in all areas of your life. Do not hide or hold back areas of your life from God. Especially not the parts that you are most afraid of or most ashamed of. Let God blot out your sin, your fear, your anxiety, your pride. Especially your pride. Because he will replace it with something far more beautiful and grand. At this time, I want to invite the worship team up. And we're going to segue into communion. First Corinthians 11 says this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats or The bread or drinks the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As the worship team plays, I just want to invite you to take some time to examine yourself. Like David did. And he prayed... For God to bring to his mind any uncleanliness so that he could repent of it and be cleansed of it. Don't hide your sins from yourself and don't hide them from God. Let him bring them to the surface so that he can cleanse them and make you clean. And then come and rejoice in your salvation through Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not like us. We thank you that you do not judge us by our worst moments and our worst sins. We thank you that your mercy is new every morning. And that when we humble ourselves and ask, you will blot out our sins. And you restore in us a heart after your heart. And give us a legacy of righteousness. A legacy of not only leading a good life that is pleasing to you, but a life 
that leads others to do what is good and right as well so that our life becomes a blessing to others. Just as the life of Jesus Christ is a blessing to us. Lord, bring to our minds what we need to be cleansed of. And remove our shame. Remove our pride. And let us draw near to you. And become wholly dependent on you, our God and our Savior. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. For saving us from our sins and the promise of eternal life. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.